0: I look back at my, like some of my training diaries from like 2015, 2014 oh, yeah. before kids. And I was like, whoa, I used to, I used to train a lot. <laughs> I was stupid and I wasn't doing it right. But <laughs> I was, I was like, I could do, I could do, I could like go and ride in the mornings and like do like a 90 minute ride before starting work. So those are good days.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael and this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, Today, it's just going to be Michael and myself, but uh, we would like to talk about some very relevant topics, I would say, Um, especially if you live in Western Canada or the Pacific Northwest. Uh, if you haven't been following the news, uh, it has literally been burning up here. Um, so we've had this strange climate formation. Um, and I don't want to get into the, the nuances and the debate about uh, climate um, climate change and global warming. But uh, suffice it to say that it has been extremely hot here. And there's just been just been this heat dome sitting on top of Western Canada. And some of the temperatures that are being hit are just obscene like never before observed in Canada they've set records by seven or eight degrees uh, especially in this one area in BC and it, I figured it was a good time to talk a little bit about um, heat and humidity which uh, obviously is very uh, uh, one of our favorite topics but something that mm-hmm. uh, that has a little bit more relevance this this summer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I think we covered back in the, it's, it's fun now that we have, we have had enough episodes in our, uh, in our episode library that I can't quite remember all of them. I think we're at hundred depending when this comes out, one 11, something like that. And, uh, and I do believe that one of the very, very early episodes that we did, we talked about this very topic, but it's, uh, it's so far in the depths of history that uh, I think it's, it's worth mentioning again. And as you say, it's, it's, uh, really topical right now
1: yeah and what i really wanted to touch on is just kind of the i would say the crazy limits that people have um especially when you look at the thermodynamics of it which is the way Mm. i tend to look at things Uh, (laughs) um maybe not everything through that lens (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah when you have a hammer everything's a nail yes Uh, so uh but it's interesting though because there's there's a lot of really neat stuff that goes on with your body and how you compensate for some of these temperatures Mm -hmm. and uh and i think it's it's a good discussion about um you know, it is just a dry heat in a lot of cases. Um, some people some people from hot climates, uh, they look down on other people from humid climates. So I, I speak having sat on both sides of the fence, so Ontario is extremely humid. And it's it's crazy the humidity and the feeling of oppression in the summer when you get like a 32, 33 degree day, which on its own is it's hot. But it's not crazy hot. But then you have eighty percent humidity, and it feels like it's forty-five, mm-hmm. and it's just everything you do, you just sweat instantly, and it is miserable.
0: So why don't we start um, with with uh, with a chat about what how humidity affects the way that we perceive temperature, and then also how uh, climate science or not climate scientists meteorologists let's say. Uh, or like you know the the T, the TV weather people have uh, have tried to convey that feeling to us you know that you, you hear you hear terms like humidex or real feel um, there's there's some some real science behind that um, can you talk us through that one Andrew yeah yeah so it's I guess to start off let's look
1: at it in terms of just how humidity is defined so the way we usually talk about humidity is relative humidity uh, which is Kind of, I would say the, um, the least direct way to, to talk about it, but uh, it has some importance to it. So mm-hmm. relative humidity is just how much moisture is in the air compared to how much the air can hold. So you can okay. have a fixed amount. So usually it's in grams per cubic meter, um, but you can have a fixed amount of, uh, of water in the air. And depending on the temperature, the relative humidity changes, even if the exact amount of humidity or the, the amount of water in the air stays constant. Um, and why is that well it's just the the ability it's like the solubility of um water and air basically um i don't know the exact thermodynamic definition or or the the exact physics but it's uh, basically when something's hotter it tends to uh be able to hold or to dissolve more of something so it it carries through with uh humidity as well so if you're dealing with um a really hot air you can cram a lot more water into it
0: when <laughs> and you can feel it
1: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah some days it feels like you're swimming through the air um but uh what's really interesting is because the temperature fluctuates and you know if you've got a a, a constant amount of water that fluctuation in temperature will actually cause a big change in relative humidity hmm. and when it cools down significantly this is when you end up in a weird situation where you're um, basically pushing the the level of the humidity up or the relative humidity up, so you're you're bringing down the temperature. The water can no longer be held by the air, so it's now fully saturated. Uh, and this is when you see, like, if you're on a, a hot summer's day and you've got a, you know, a nice glass of beer with some ice in it or something like that. Um, I don't know who actually drinks beer with ice, but. Uh, um, you get the condensation on the outside. People in
0: Southeast Asia, it's, it's, it's amazing. we, the, the total, total sidebar, but like in, uh, <laughs> when we were traveling, when Dan and I uh, were traveling through like uh, Thailand and Laos and, and, and um, uh, you know, other places in there, Malaysia, they would serve beer with ice. Malaysians aren't big drinkers, but you know, everywhere else, it was like, it was, you could get, you could get beer with ice. And it was a, a very common thing, Vietnam as well. Yeah. Because it was stupid hot out there and uh, you know, the ice would keep your, your beer uh, cooler for longer.
1: Well, there you go. And I bet they yep. saw some condensation forming because they're I essentially, bet they did. <laughs> they're, they're essentially cooling that air near the glass uh, down below its uh, dew point where the relative humidity is a hundred percent. Um, so the same thing tends to happen at night, which is why in the summer, if you're, um, if you're staying out late in the evening and the temperature is dropping quickly, you can go from something like a 30 or 40% humidity, which is kind of on the dry side, but fairly comfortable. And mm-hmm. as it gets cooler, it just gets really, really stuffy and humid because it's, uh, the air is not really able to, to hold that water anymore
0: so why does it feel stuffy if it's the same amount of the same amount of you know water dissolved in the in the air why does it feel stuffy to us at that point
1: um it's a good question uh, I don't have an exact answer for that I don't know if you're leading. I <laughs> I have a, I have or a or... guess
0: it was kind of a leading question okay. but I think we'll get to, we'll get to it in a minute but
1: uh I wonder if it's the same guess I have
0: <laughs> I, yeah probably is so you want to take take a flyer listeners we have no we're, we are totally guessing at this one
1: Yeah. So full disclosure. Uh, But, but we, my, my guess is it's just, um, you know, you're, you're always sweating a little bit or your body's always sensing Mm. kind of the humidity. That was
0: my guess too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So when it's hundred percent humidity, you just, you don't evaporate any sweat and that's, that's when you uh, you just feel this lack of cooling basically. So there's, there's no more evaporative cooling. And I know we, we did speak about evaporative cooling in quite, great detail early on. And this is talking about how much energy transfer you can get and you can have really high convective cooling. So that's the cooling coming from the air flowing over you, but that doesn't compare anywhere near the amount of energy you can get rid of by sweating the one and a half to two liters an hour. Um, So the the relative humidity, the the important thing there is that um, it's compared to how much the air can actually hold. So if you're at a high relative humidity, it's going to feel stuffy. You're going to have less uh, evaporative effect. And if it's a low relative humidity, this is where um, where it feels like a dry heat. Uh, so what, what I had experienced over the last week or so was some of the highest actual thermometer temperatures I've ever felt, but hmm. um, usually in Ontario. So while well, for example, the, the temperatures we were seeing, I think the highest was 37 degrees in Alberta, which is okay. hot. I mean, no one's gonna say that's a cold day, but uh, in Lytton, BC, which set the Canadian record, I think it was 49.6 degrees
0: Celsius. What? So it was. That's not That's not like an Earth temperature. That's like when you read about space and you, you, re- you see temperatures like that. So
1: I actually read an article from, I think it was the Washington Post, but they were comparing these temperatures to uh, Death Valley. And mm-hmm. Death Valley has a little bit of an edge, but uh, on that particular day, it was hotter in. British Columbia than it was in Death Valley. Um, wow. It also is higher than the all-time record for Las Vegas, and it was one degree, uh, one degree Fahrenheit, so less than a degree Celsius off the record for Phoenix. Um, hmm. And Vegas and Phoenix are desert. So.
0: Yeah, no kidding. That's that's wild.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, then, I,
0: for my own for my own sake, I, I was uh, I lived a little bit in Australia, and I was there over the two thousand nine wildfire season. Um, which was before the one in I don't know twenty nineteen or twenty twenty, whenever the very, the last very bad wildfire season was, which eclipsed it. That one was the worst on the record, and there was a week. I always tell the story. There was a week where the lowest daytime high, so like the maximum temperature in the day, um, the low the coolest quote unquote coolest day was forty two degrees. Cool. I mean, it definitely got cooler than that at night, but it was like that was the lowest daytime high. So it was above forty for I think six or seven days, and but it was the same thing. The, the relative humidity was very low. So you could mm-hmm. be outside as long as you weren't in the sun. And it was not terrible, which, is, which gets to your point about evaporative cooling. Because then how could, you, how could your body operate in, a, in a, you know, an environment where uh, ambient temperature is above body temperature? How can you cool yes. in that sense? Usually you would think you would be only gaining heat. But then the answer is the magic of, uh, of the, the heat of what, vaporization of, yeah. uh, of water.
1: And there's, there's a term that comes in for uh, for this, and it's the wet bulb temperature. Um, so wet bulb temperature basically uh, derives itself from the way it used to be measured, where you would put a little sock over top of a, but not like a foot sock, but just like a, a little <laughs> thermometer sock for little thermometer feet.
0: A little, uh, little <laughs> mental image for you listeners. <laughs> so Take you put your socks. That,
1: you would put that over the bulb of a uh, of a mercury thermometer, and you would wet it, and you would spin it around. And you're basically forcing a lot of convective cooling, and then it hits a saturation point where basically it can't evaporate any more, uh, any more liquid and it will hit a certain temperature, and that's the wet bulb temperature. So, that lowest temperature that you can bring it to.
0: So, that's cool. I've always seen that term, but I never knew what it, what it actually meant. That's, that's really neat. Okay.
1: <laughs> I think in my first probably my first thermodynamics class our professor actually brought in one of these old devices and huh. and i like i do remember the sock it looked like a little cut out piece of you know cotton fabric that was just not trimmed very gently and had been used for 50 years <laughs> teaching students and it had a little <laughs> uh hinge that you spun the thermometer on but huh. um, so, yeah, neat little device. Obviously, there's a lot of things that measure that automatically now, but that used to be used to, you would get the, the dry bulb temperature, which is just what a thermometer normally reads, and then you get the wet bulb temperature. Mm-hmm. And then the difference between those two can tell you a lot. Um, so there's something called a psychrometric chart, uh, which is used very commonly. I remember commonly. those. Yeah, they're weird-looking charts. They're, they are. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to explain the shape of I think it. I of think like that's
0: the that's the episode art for this for this show. Andrew yeah. is is one of those.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, nerdiest episode ever!
0: <laughs> yes,
1: uh, but the 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 chart will actually tell you a lot of different information. So if you have the wet bulb temperature and the dry bulb temperature, um, depending on what angle all these lines go, and there's so many different things for a two axis chart that it can actually show you. Um, but uh, you can tell the relative humidity. You can tell um, the amount of water that's in the air, uh, things like that. And it's it's very useful for people doing air conditioning calculations. But uh, I also use it as well when you're looking at, okay, if you were cooling someone or something down and you had water sprayed on them uh, and a big fan on them, um, how cool could you actually get them? And that's kind of the closest, you know, definition that I think of when wet bulb temperature comes into it. And with very low humidity, there can be a 10 or 12 degree difference sometimes in uh, like in the the dry bulb and wet bulb. So it's, um, and is that
0: just because the, uh, in just because that the, you know, the, the sock in, in this case can evaporate that much more water in a dry environment and drive the temperature down in the thermometer that much more?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Hmm. it's um, basically, well, I'm looking at the chart right now and at 30 degrees Celsius uh, at 0%, uh, which is very hard to achieve, 0% relative humidity. The dry bulb temperature, or sorry, the wet bulb temperature is around 10 degrees. So that's a 20 degree. How difference much is it? Columbia. 10 degrees.
0: Wow that's enormous. So so in this in this if i can if i can make an analogy uh listeners, you are the thermometer and your skin suit or tri suit is the sock and uh you know whatever you get sprayed on by spectators or your own your own sweat of course is the is the is the you know the wetness of the sock in this case. So you you are the wet bulb in uh in a triathlon as you or or a cycling or running race as you go along.
1: Exactly. You're just a big wet sock. Yep. Um, so if you bring it up to 40% humidity though, uh, that actually, um, goes from 10 degrees all the way up to about 22 degrees. Um, so Hmm. that's you know, more common range for humidity. I think we were like in our heat wave, we were at- 40 like, is quite
0: dry though. Like 40 it is- It is dry. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's 40 would, to my Ontario body, you know, and as you mentioned, Ontario does get quite humid. Uh, to my Ontario body in the summer, if it's 40% humidity, it's like, wow, it's dry. It's comfortable. Like 40 is very, it's quite low for us here in the summer. Um, but for you, maybe it's like for, for Ontario or for Alberta, it's probably normal.
1: Yeah. When, when we hit this heat wave, uh, we were at like- 35 to 40%, depending on the time of day. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was like, that is still extremely dry. But uh, already by that point, you're getting down to only an eight degree difference uh, between. So what if
0: we're at like 80%, what if we're like, you know, Kona-ish conditions, you know, fairly typical of Kona, 30 degrees and 80% 80 humidity.
1: So 30 degrees Celsius dry bulb is about 27 wet bulb. Mm. So you can see the difference already. Uh, and how that would be impacting your your ability to cool, uh, just because you don't have that low temperature that you can now, or that the evaporation would now drop your skin down to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, it it has a huge huge impact. And when you get into these conditions where it's completely saturated, so late in the evening or early in the morning, when the temperature tends to be at its lowest. Uh, that's usually when you end up with the highest relative humidity, just because you're you're bringing the right. top down on the the ability of the wa- the air to hold water. Uh, right. You're squeezing it all out, and yeah. and that's uh, why you get
0: dew formation on exactly. you know plants and things and spider webs and yep. pretty pretty things you can look at in the mornings <laughs> on your dog walks. It's
1: pretty. It's just not great for cooling. Although you that's are true. at the lowest temperature when that happens, so it's the that's mm-hmm. the nice part of it. Um, but that's, that's actually the dew point is when you hit hundred percent relative humidity. So any lower and anything, well, anything below that temperature would start to condense water, uh, which is why you get your, your beer with ice in it in Southeast <laughs> Asia, you get that right. uh, condensing water.
0: Do you know how that how all of this translates into the, you know, the readings that we see on the, on the TV with, uh, with hu- Humidex or whatever you want to call it?
1: Well, that's, that's a little bit more complicated because, um, and I think there's a little bit of secret sauce in there. So every, uh, every news organization, meteorologist has maybe a slightly different formulation to this. Um, and it gets tweaked over time because it's, it's a very subjective feel because it's, um, it's kind of how it feels to you or to someone else. And there's no way to calibrate that. And, uh, and maybe as a bit of a, uh, Foreshadowing for later in the episode. It's very difficult to calibrate yourself um, to <laughs> a scientific device. Uh, I like what you did there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the the actual definition of it is kind of loose. So from what I understand, mm-hmm. anyway, I could be wrong about that. I think maybe there are some published numbers and, and equations that people use, but it's based on a subjective uh, scale. So the um, yeah, the the important thing though is that when you are at a high temperature. Um, so if you're above, uh, 35 degrees or 37 degrees, which is, you know, your core body temperature, theoretically you can't shed heat. So you would have to, mm-hmm. like, you would continue building it up because your metabolism sure doesn't stop. Uh, it'll, it'll slow down a bit, but it's not going to stop. Um, and if you're at hundred percent relative humidity in 37 degrees, then that's kind of game over there. There's not much you can do to keep yourself cool.
0: Yeah, that's why people die. I mean, this is yeah. you know, it's, it's it's a little bit grim to say, but uh, like that's that's what you know. When your body can't shed heat, that's when you, you know, you accumulate it. And we've talked about you know heat stress and heat stroke in the past, and uh, we usually look at it from a uh, through the lens of endurance exercise, but you know, there've been, there've been a lot of, uh, you know, sadly, a lot of people who've died in BC recently because mm-hmm. of, uh, heat related effects. Right. And, and so, you know, to your point, if your body exceeds its ability to cool itself and you don't have the, you know, if you're like, if, you know, if you're, uh, if you don't have a home to go to and you don't have like a cooling place to go to, then, then you're, you're, you're kind of screwed, right? Like, unfortunately it's, uh, uh it's a really, you know, it's a tragedy. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the reality that we're starting to live in.
1: Yeah, and it's um, you. You do see one of the first things that happens, at least in in large city centers where they can hopefully afford to do this, is these cooling stations mm-hmm. set up to to help mitigate the heat effects. So if you're um, if you are fully saturated, getting cold water sprayed on you is only going to help in the fact that the water is cooler than your body, and then once it's up at body temperature and 100% humidity then it's not going to evaporate. However, because that hundred percent rarely happens at the highest temperature, um, except for very special circumstances, like say you were in a mine or something where there's no air exchange. Mm. Um, And I have heard, and we can touch back on this, but I have heard some interesting ways of dealing with that. But um, these cooling stations will typically mist water and the evaporation of that water in the air. So not even touching your body yet. Um, it's essentially acting as an air conditioner and this is actually, cool. yeah, it is, uh, it's an evaporative cooler. Um, it's a common air conditioning technique used in kind of the Southwest and North America where it's very dry, uh, as well as not so much in Alberta, but, um, it's it's amazing how effective it is, but it just doesn't work in Ontario because the the wet bulb temperature is too high. It's uh, it's already mm-hmm. too muggy, and you don't want to add more humidity to the air.
0: <laughs> add add liquid to the water or to the to the air. That's really interesting. Evaporative coolers are, are fascinating, and that mm-hmm. that's the thing that you know when when you, when I first looked at them until you you told me this. I don't know some weeks ago. Um, I assumed that they were just spraying people, and then as a result of having maybe like supplementing your own body sweat, you have more moisture on your body to evaporate, but it's actually cooling. And the fact that it's actually cooling the air around you, that's that's really neat.
1: Yeah, it's doing a little bit of both. But uh, mm. when you have a fine mist like that, uh, like what you need to drive evaporation is a lot of surface area. And we're kind of fixed sure. with our surface area. Um, there are ways to increase it, but they usually don't result in you going faster. Um, <laughs> so, uh, But the the droplets themselves, like an aerosol, is a very effective way to increase um, surface area. And this is kind of going off on a tangent, but I remember an interesting example for chemistry. Um, When you look at uh, a a flour mill, um, they used to explode. Because you've got this pulverized flour that is floating in the air. And if you took a match and dropped it on a pile of flour, it's not gonna do anything. But this pulverized, aerosolized flour uh, with a ton of surface area Something that's not really reactive how we're normally used to it. If it gets in the right proportions, uh, it can be explosive. It's it's just like a bomb. It's like the- um, Yeah, that's your fuel. In a, yeah, in a car engine.
0: That's right that's exactly that's the example I was going to use is like the fuel injectors is that that's what they're doing with, with mm-hmm. gasoline same thing with gasoline right like if you've got a puddle of gasoline on the f- on the ground you can light it you can ign- you can get it to ignite with uh with an open flame but you're it's not going to explode, but if it's aerosolized, that's a totally different story
1: and I think it goes without saying, please don't try this at home
0: don't try this at home, especially don't try aerosolizing things and trying to get them to explode. <laughs> Just kind of like my misspent youth. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's another right about that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, we'll keep that one in the uh, in the in the in the you know the idea bank for now, Andrew. Um, so, is there anything that that folks can take away? Like, look, so let's let let's get back to we we spent some time talking about you know um, the physics behind uh, behind humidity and temperature. Uh, let's get back to endurance training and racing. Mm-hmm. If you have to train and race in this stuff, what are some practical um, tips f- for doing it? I've got a couple. If you want to share a couple for yourself, um, let's, let's do that just so we can give people something to take away from this.
1: Yeah, well, I think the first thing that's uh, probably pretty obvious is... don't, don't train when it's too hot out because you do put yourself at risk for heat stress. Mm -hmm. So if you can, if you can train, you know, later in the day, past the peak temperatures or early in the day before the peak temperatures, that's great. Um, the other thing too, is the fuel for all this evaporation is your own hydration level. Um, this moisture obviously doesn't just come from nowhere. So, uh, make sure that you stay fully hydrated and, you know, just uh, you need to keep the the sweat going. Um, So Mm -hmm. a lot of people think of sweating as being something out of shape people do, but it's actually, As far as I know, it's pretty much the opposite. It's heat acclimation that leads you to sweat faster. Uh,
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Uh, It's interesting on, now that we're getting into like full summer and, you know, I'm reading uh, training reports from people and the occasional race reports from folks in the States that I work with that have the luxury of being allowed to race. Sadly, we're still in race lockdown here, even as things are opening up. Um, The... uh, shorter stuff, you can probably, you can get away with, with it reasonably well, right? Like, you're 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 dealing with core temperature effects, right? So, as you overheat and you can overheat, you know, depending on your body mass, like, bigger people have a bigger heat sink. Uh, we talked about this a lot when we talked with uh, the guys from Core Body Temperature Sensor. But, yeah, big folks have a bigger heat sink and you will definitely overheat and depending on how hard you're working, you, in usually bigger people produce more, more heat because they're able to produce more power um, and they have less surface area to volume ratio. So, it's not a long-term term wind be big but in the short events then you you don't usually get too cooked um and i'm finding with with the folks i'm working with like if we're dealing we can even deal with some intensity uh, and even doing some quality work provided that the workouts are short um and uh and there's not a lot of you know a lot of duration in there that we can still do quite a bit of useful work uh, it's really the long stuff that's super stressful in the heat because Uh, Yeah, core temperature effects go up, especially if you're, you know, a bigger sink. Um, But also that's when dehydration bites you in the ass. Like you can only sweat out so much liquid in, you know, an hour or 75 minutes, maybe even 90 minute workout, like especially, you know, if you're, you know, again, maybe larger than average, you're carrying around. I don't know, five liters of of blood plasma or something like that, plus or minus a little bit. You're not really going to lose very much, very much as a percentage in that in that ninety minutes. But if you're out for like, if you're out there for a six hour bike ride, right, or if you're out there for like a you know three hour run, which I would never ever ever recommend anyone do in the heat. That's not a good idea. Um, that's when you really start to run into trouble because you it's it's also it's impossible to replenish all the fluid that you lose on hot days, and it's not a good idea to try because it'll just sit in your gut. It just doesn't. It just can't absorb quickly enough I like how we're bringing a lot of topics in here um but uh yeah so kind of like my big takeaways is you know try not to do it uh, especially long stuff I think long workouts are probably the hardest in the heat and there's not a lot of upside to doing them like you can think about heat adaptation training nobody does long nobody does except for like outside of labs and cruel, you know, (laughs) tests, test scenarios. No one does really long at a training in the heat on purpose. I don't think, or they shouldn't, in my opinion. Um, so that kind of stuff you really want to watch out for. And uh, if, you, if you have no choice, you really got to take intensity way down and be extra careful with hydration. Um, if you have the option taken indoors in an air-conditioned space, I know running three hours on a treadmill kind of sucks. Um, but if, you, if that run needs to happen, I would say like move heaven and earth to, to move things around in your schedule to, to avoid doing that kind of training in, that, in those conditions. Um, but indoors, indoors is, is always an option uh, as well.
1: Uh, the other thing that people don't always take into consideration with dry air is uh, you actually lose a lot of moisture from your lungs as well. Um, so in humid air, if you're breathing in humid air and then breathing out humid air, uh, it can't actually absorb that much very good water. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're breathing in dry air and, and exhaling humid air, um, your lungs are actually a very good heat exchanger and heat transfer and mass transfer are basically analogous to each other. So it, you also get a lot of moisture transpiration there. So... It's something that uh, you will end up losing a lot of breathing moisture as well. Um, and this mm-hmm. is just think of fogging a window, right? Like you, you're basically, well, you're causing, <laughs> it's, a, it's a quick cycle, but you're actually causing uh, condensation because you're bringing the, up the temperature of the air, you're putting moisture into it, and you breathe it out and it touches a cold window and then it drops down blow its dew point, mm-hmm. um, so that's what the condensation or the fog on a window is when you breathe on it. But that's that's you losing moisture from your body there.
0: And this happens a lot in winter, right? Because uh, in in winter people mm-hmm. people are missing that, and I'm I'm not going to spend much time talking about this. But we're missing that that kind of the thirst reflex is usually calibrated to heat. No one really, I, I don't, I say no one. I don't know what that thirst reflex, how that thirst reflex is calibrated. But we're way less thirsty in the winter because it's cold, right? I think that's that that stands to reason. Again, kind of like my educated guess on that one, but as you, you, uh, to your point, like in the winter, because of what you were talking about earlier, how you know cold air has much less capacity mm-hmm. for for carrying water. So even if the relative humidity is quite high in the winter, which it often is because it's just so cold, and there's not a lot of air in the in the in the there's not a lot of water in the air. I don't know why I'm having so much trouble with that. But I keep as you say, if, if you're too if you're expelling yeah if you're expelling air at body temperature it has a ton of a ton of moisture compared to the outside air and the, the air that you're inhaling when it's then warmed up to body temperature then it's it's it actually ends up being quite dry so even mm. if it's super humid and the relative humidity rather is quite high in the winter it's still rel- it's still very dry relative to you know the air that you're breathing out and so you you could potentially lose quite a bit of moisture, and you're not interested in drinking because it's cold. So that's that's a, a factor that you know we, that is often overlooked in winter. But happily, we're far away from winter; we don't have to think about it. Um, so in dry conditions in the summer, you gotta yeah you got to be careful with that um, with that hydration. Also um, for. Uh, for, for the differences between cycling and running, obviously in cycling, there's a lot more convective heat transfer, which also helps with convective mass transfer of evaporation, right, Andrew? And so uh, cycle, that's why it's so much more comfortable riding your bike when it's hot. And the the real implication that I want to touch on is we're getting into hopefully racing maybe um, or, you know, race style workouts where you you you're on a bike and you're like okay well you know it's hot but I'm I'm managing this and I'm you know my my thermal comfort level is reasonable because I'm sweating and there's a lot of wind flowing past me because I'm creating it and it, it feels nice and cool and then you hop off the bike and you start running and it's just like it hits you like a <laughs> hammer because all yes, of a sudden your speed your speed drops I don't know by a factor of 3 give or take um, and it's it is holy smokes a lot hotter when you don't have all airflow blowing past you and you, maybe your posture is a little well your posture is obviously different biking and running and I, I, I have a, I have a feeling that that actually affects uh, evaporative cooling too um, and uh, it's uh, yeah it's a it's a huge effect so it's something to, to pay attention to when you're pacing the bike because there's you know there's all sorts of considerations for pacing the bike but thermal considerations should be one of them when it's hot and if you feel thermally okay, on the bike, and then you hop off and you start running. That doesn't mean that it's going to carry over to the run. It sometimes happens very quickly, and if it's a long race, that's you may have overcooked it, and again, it literally overcooked it in this case, or no, still figuratively. Um, and uh, you're you're you, there's it's it's hard to come back from that.
1: Yeah, definitely some some good points there. Um, I would say the one final takeaway, and this is more of a public service preaching announcement. I don't know what you want to call it, but. Uh, the, I mean, the, the, big thing is like, we're not meant to handle this, uh, the places we live in generally aren't meant to handle this kind of heat. And in mm-hmm. BC, like one or two days after setting these temperature records, uh, the town of Lytton literally burned to the ground. Um, yep. so everything gets so dry and, um, you know, whether or not you blame it on climate change or something else, but, uh, the, the point no, is we'll,
0: we'll blame it on climate change. <laughs> okay. I'm, 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 glad I'm happy be comfortable to like, with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally, I mean, like, I'm not a, I'm not a climate scientist. So like, I'm talking out of my ass a little bit on this one, but I mean, I think the preponderance of evidence is pretty fucking strong in that case.
1: Yeah. And when you beat a record by eight degrees, uh, a record that has stood for 125 years or something, you smash yep. it by eight degrees. That's, uh, that's a pretty strong statement, but um, yeah, it's a you strong see, signal yeah, you see the the impact like how quickly uh, because all of these news crews were hanging around litton BC and um, you know a day or two later it's on fire, and just everything, so it takes far less energy to actually start a fire, so it can be a cigarette butt or a um, you know a, a spark from whatever a car. Mm-hmm. car brakes they they even suspected it was uh, sparks off of train wheels that uh, was enough to cause mm-hmm. the the fire to start um that's so because everything's so dry right yeah it becomes so much easier it takes less energy from the actual spark to ignite something and mm-hmm. and that's the real problem is like when you get into alberta the you know the desert areas wherever you look there's um like it's just everything is so dry as a result um we fortunately had a bit of rain in alberta leading up to it so the grass was kind of green, but very quickly it gets yellow. So there's, there's not much mm-hmm. green after one of these, uh, these yeah. heat waves. So anyway, it's, um, yeah, be cautious. So if you're, you know, outdoors don't, uh, and this is just, you know, if you're camping or whatever and you're in a dry area, just pay attention to the, uh, the no fires, no, um, no burning signs. Cause, um, yeah, it's super critical. Cause I think there's like 125 forest fires going in BC right now.
0: And it's super early for forest fires in BC, is, right? Yeah. Usually it's like an August problem.
1: Yep. Uh yesterday yep. actually um we had, well, basically a huge haze settle over the Cochrane area and the haze was smoke from BC fires. So it's mm-hmm. it's starting already. So that's the yeah. the downside of the heat or another downside of the heat.
0: Right. Okay, let's move on because yes. I mean it's abundantly clear that we can spend a lot of time talking about this thing. <laughs> yeah. um, we 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 have a the next segment we want to cover is, is a short one. It's uh, it was a question that uh, that one of our listeners submitted, and actually this listener is a as uh, a patron and one of the original patrons when we first announced that we were on Patreon. So uh, Chris Kirker, thank you so much for for your support. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. I'm pretty confident with Chris though. I, I think I can, I think I got that. I, I got that one nailed. Um, so uh, Chris writes, um, it, he, he asks us actually to have a, a chat with a coach to talk about this. Um, and Chris, we are working on this, but uh, I think it's such a wonderful question that I want to uh, share my thoughts on it uh, before we do line up that interview. And so, um, Uh, Chris was asking if we know anyone who is coached only using RPE, which uh, folks, of course, is uh, is rate of perceived exertion. So it's a subjective um, evaluation of how hard you are working at any given time. Um, And so he says that his wife has been training for third Ironman and does not use anything except for her RPE, which is like remarkable and unusual, Chris. Um, And so... uh, and uh, then he says, uh, listening to our show and to Michael Erickson's Scientific Triathlon podcast, um, or that triathlon show from Scientific <laughs> Triathlon, uh, he started with all the uh, all the bells and whistles, as he says. Uh, he had a power meter and a Garmin, a heart rate monitor. Um, but his wife was uh, finding it, you know, she didn't enjoy she didn't enjoy the process, and um, they slowly eliminated each piece of tech um for as as an experiment which is a really like a really clever experiment right because if if uh because the the training process has to work for you, for the individual athlete and we're all different and we have different uh different triggers with stuff and different uh different motivating levers maybe and so um basically they they uh, so chris was chris uh, eliminated everything other than RPE, and so uh, his wife now trains solely by RPE, as he mentions, and just use a scale of three to ten, where I imagine ten is is all out, and three would be would be I think three is uh, is moderate on the on the ten point scale to being easy. Um, and so uh, what he says is that he still does keep track of her numbers and he adjusts accordingly, but he he never tells her, you know, his secrets are sometimes okay. Um, and then uh, and he says that she can now replicate what he's asking her to do with scary accuracy, which is really impressive actually. And Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll touch on that in a minute. So he wants to know what, what, uh, what we think about training with RPE only without the use of any, any kind of gadgets. So, um, I'll start with saying that this is what we used to do, right? There was a point where in athletics where all you really had was, I mean, if you were running track or if you were a serious roadrunner, you had a stopwatch um, or, or, you know, back in the day, you wouldn't even, you know, you may not have a stopwatch. It would just be your coach who has who had the stopwatch. Um, and then you could probably measure distance reasonably accurately, certainly if you were on a track. Uh, but mostly it was, it was perceived exertion. And then, and Chris makes a mention of uh, of Dave Scott, I think, racing like that. Um, so it it can certainly be done, right. It has been done before to, to some, some great success. Um, I do think there's a place obviously, I mean, look with (laughs) the, uh, the title of our show, the show that we're, we're, we're talking to you from is endurance innovation. And, and obviously if you've listened to us, we're, we're big tech, you know, tech files and, uh, we like all the stuff. Um, but I think there has been, I, don't, I wouldn't say that the pendulum has swung against technology in training. I think there's still very much, you know, there's more technology coming out and more, you know, more ways of analyzing that, the data that comes from it sometimes. Um, and, um, but I do think that people who are who are savvy, who are paying attention to the the science that's coming out or or more so, maybe even not the not the sports scientists, but the coaches that are actually practicing in the field, they are maybe this is my own personal opinion, maybe swinging a little bit more to the to the subjective side or maybe not even swinging it but but paying more attention to the two subjective metrics of their athletes and probably the good coaches always paid a lot of attention to those um and i th- there's i think that's a really good thing right because there are a lot of holes even with all the best gadgets even when they work perfectly even when you know what to do with all of that data right as uh sometimes you do and sometimes you don't um even if all those things are there, there's still a lot missing from that picture because there's because I mean put very simply, there, nothing captures global stress all that well. Even heart rate variability is kind of you know I mean it has some utility, but there also has some gaps. Um, and so I don't know of any one device or series of devices that that gets that gets at all of it. And so that's why RPE is is critical, I think, in, in, in training and coaching. And the way that I personally use it in my practice is the, I mean, several ways, but the most important, the most important one for me is looking at expected RPE. So if I know I'm giving somebody a session that I expect would feel like 7 out of 10, right? Like, let's say we're doing some threshold work, some longer threshold repeats, and that's not an easy session. So 7 on the the 10-point 10, 10 scale is very hard. It's, like, you know, the first very hard level. It's kind of, like, the most I want to see people do most of the time. And so let's say it's a longer threshold session, and I expect it to be a 7 out of 10. Somebody does it and hits their numbers, and their power meter's not broken. They're, like, 5 out of 10. This is, like, I felt good. Then that's a sign that maybe we have their, their like, threshold miscalibrated. Maybe it's too low or the the inverse works too. So if like, let's say I'm expecting a seven and they can't finish in like, and they say, okay, I, I wrung every last bit out of myself and I was like a nine out of 10 and I couldn't do it. So then I would say like, okay, then that's really important feedback. Maybe, maybe your FTP is, you know, miscalibrated in the opposite direction, or maybe you're just having a bad day, overtired, whatever. So it's incredibly useful. But again, in my practice, I use it in conjunction with the objective metrics with power, heart rate, pace, whatever. Um, and it- while I think it's definitely possible to use RPE alone, uh, obviously you're you're using it with you know RPE is a measure of intensity, just like heart rate or pace or power. Um, and uh, you you'd still need to be capturing duration in some some way, shape or form, whether or not it's you know meters swam or 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 kilometers run or, or or ridden or in in cycling terms I would say more more useful would be, Duration, like in time and running, in some to some extent, would be more useful to use duration. So, I've seen duration times RPE as a as a metric of total volume used, and I think that can be used. You know, if you're like, uh, it's it's one way to to assess total training volume. You know, duration times RPE, or because I mean, anything like TSSs or any similar metrics are some measure of duration and some measure of intensity so in this case you're just replacing power pace heart rate as measures of intensity with with rpe as a measure of intensity so i think it can work and clearly in in your wife's case chris it it is working Uh, i do think that you are that you can get more insight if you couple it with with the uh the devices and it sounds like you're doing that it sounds like you know you're tracking those that data i don't know how you're sneaking you know the power meter on, on her bike or, or like the, the, how you, how you're convincing her to wear a heart rate strap when she doesn't want to collect heart rate. Uh, I, I, you know, that's, that's between you and her. Uh, but uh, I think it's, uh, I think you're, you're probably missing a little piece of the puzzle, but you're probably getting a lot of the things right anyway, especially if she's successful with, with, with her application. And I'll say this too, because I think, I think this is something that's, that's sometimes lost in the, you know, this is the forest for the trees thing where um, where you just you you can do where, if you get like the, the volume, if you get the duration piece right for most athletes, especially for long course athletes and you keep them healthy and safe and happy you can do a ton. You can get a lot wrong as long as you can get them to train as much as they're comfortable training, as much as their schedule will allow them to train. And as much as, you know, they can handle with their recovery and not get sick, not get injured. Um, you're, you're doing it right. And, uh, you know, Bjor, uh, i try Bjorn Kafka. He's been, uh, been working on my German pro- uh, uh, pronunciation of that name. Uh, he was, he said that when he was on our show and he, he said it to me in recent conversations too. Um, that everything works. And I think this is a, this is a not enough appreciated maxim in endurance training. And to a very large extent, everything does work. Uh, so whatever you can get your athlete, if you're working with an athlete or for you, uh, if you're self-coached, whatever you can do to make you do the right things, whatever the, those motivating levers are, as I mentioned earlier, that get you there, then that's great. That that's, that's what you should be using. Sorry, Andrew, that was a lot of words.
1: (laughs) No, no, I was uh, the only thing I was going to interject there, um, and it wasn't in disagreement at all, it was actually thinking back to when we started our conversation before we started recording here, um, I was actually talking about that exact scenario where I have had a couple runs recently where on paper um, I had good pace uh, and my heart rate was quite low, but I felt terrible. So, like, if you're just looking at the data without taking RPE into consideration... It looks really good, and then if you ask me, mm. it was the exact opposite. So, yes. Um, so it's it, that's a I think a, a very relevant example. And if you can also continually recalibrate yourself and recalibrate your RPE, which it sounds like is exactly the situation here, that actually I think could be beneficial for pacing. Plus, you're not reliant on technology, which is sometimes prone to failure. So, mm-hmm. um, there's probably a lot of Ironman athletes out there who, if their power meter died, uh, they would be in serious trouble. <laughs>
0: so. so I don't know if I've ever shared this story before. My, my I've only done one Ironman so far and uh, before Canada Man later this year. And this is Ironman Muskoka. The one year it was run, which is like the hardest Ironman in Canada at the time, just because it was like the Ironman Muskoka half twice, which is a lot of climbing. And it was like uh it was, it was, it was, you know, a comedy of errors and uh, it was a, it was a really let's say interesting experience, but my power meter didn't work. It was the same thing. And I stopped three times on the bike to try to get a reset it, to like reset my Garmin. It just wouldn't pair. It was a little, like a Stages Gen 2, which had some issues, especially when you were, when they were working, when um when you were pairing them to watches and not to uh, like proper head unit or like proper, like bicycle head units. They had connection issues up the mm-hmm. wazoo. And, uh, and one of the times that it happened to me was in Ironman Muskoka. And I was like, fuck, what do I do now? So then I went to like heart rate, like I had a plan B and it's important to have a plan B, but we're getting off topic. I think, yeah, your your point about what your recent experience is really interesting. And I, you know, I try to, listeners, I try to give Andrew some advice, but I don't know what's going on. I think it's, if it persists, it's worth like maybe, maybe doing a blood blood test or maybe even like doing some cardiac testing but Mm -hmm. honestly i think it's probably just central nervous system fatigue that was my kind of my flyer at it um but to your point about calibration this is something that i think a lot of smart coaches talk about i know david tilbury davis friend of the show and past guest um talked about this uh he he used he uh, talked about using Uh, Not overly relying on devices, but using them to calibrate your own kind of RPE. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like what what Chris is doing in this case with coaching his wife, that isn't happening. Like she's not using, she is not using, you know, her power meter to calibrate her RPE. She's just going by RPE. Which is which is rare.
1: She is getting feedback, though. I would assume if if she doesn't go. That's a good question.
0: We're gonna we're gonna follow up with Chris (laughs) and and bring this like and kind of circle back on this anecdote. Um, But uh, yeah, the the other thing I would say, like, where your you know your training, I think, can be quite effective on RP. What scares the you know the pants off of me is is racing long course on RPE alone. Like, I think you need to have a, a very well calibrated, you know, RPE meter because weird shit happens on race day, right? Like, when anyone who's listening has an, uh, uh, has has raced before, probably most of you, you know that, like, w- you know, at the gun, most people, um, or when you start each leg of the triathlon, most people, in my experience as a coach and athlete too, um, their their RPE is lower than their effort, right? So, like, you get off the you get off the bike, you're like, oh, I feel amazing. I'm glad to be done with that stupid bike. And you start running, and maybe your cadence is higher because you're you generally cycling cadence is higher than running cadence for most of us, especially most of us with big big legs. Um, the uh, you know, and you're like, oh, I feel amazing. And then you look down, and you're like, holy shit, I'm like 30 seconds per kilometer faster than I ought to be for my uh, you know per my race plan. But I feel so good, and maybe I can you know. I can, uh, I can tough it out. And maybe that's I'm like, just
1: having
0: that's, a good day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the, it's the famous last words. Maybe I'm having a really good day in the the first kilometer of the, of the Ironman marathon. Um, and so without, with without technology, I don't know how you make that call. I mean, if you are super in tune with your body, um, you maybe make that call, but that's what, that's what I get a little bit, uh, apprehensive about is mm-hmm. racing without those checks and balances. And uh, to your point, Andrew, and you make it a really good one, like you have to, you have to always double check that stuff. Like sometimes technology does, does mess up and you get nonsense numbers. And the worst and we, I remember you br- brought this up one time before is when it's off by a little bit. When, when you know, when you're, when it shows you running at three, three minute kilometers, you're like, yeah, okay. um But when it shows you running at like, you know, 445 when you're expecting me running five or 450 when you're expecting me running five, in reality, mm-hmm. that's a huge difference for a long course race. But if you're, you know, if you're, if you're not sure that those two could feel really similar, especially early on.
1: Yep. There's uh, a lot of care that's needed, but if, well, to your point about calibration or personal self calibration, if you can do that, if you can understand what happens in a race, if you know, going into the race, that your RPE will continue to increase, even though your pace is not changing, like that's mm-hmm. just the way things naturally go. You start out, it feels easy and by the end, um, ideally, uh, if you race perfectly, you know, you should cross the finish line just as you can't sustain that pace anymore. Um, right. I don't think anyone ever paces that well, cause that takes a lot of experience and control over things that you don't often have control over. But, uh, the, the goal is to understand that, understand how your body reacts in a race under certain conditions and prepare for that, both mentally and with any technology that you do need. So I think it's, it's a really neat case study. Um, it'd be. I guess to your point, uh, it'd be interesting to to get some um, feedback and understand, you know, whether or not Chris provides feedback to his wife about, uh, you know, mm-hmm. your RPE was lower or you were lower than your target uh, without even communicating the wattage or the heart rate or anything like that. Just keeping it purely in an RPE scale, it's it's pretty interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, well. Uh, hopefully, after listening to this episode, he'll he'll write us back and, and let us know. So, thank you for sending that in, Chris, and thank you so much for being a, a supporting um, mm-hmm. patron of the of the show. As uh, as you guys heard me talk about on the on the last little snippet that I well the last little short episode that that we put out. It may not be the last one based on when this one comes out, but the recent episode when I talked about our Patreon and why we don't really promote it that much. It's because like you know we do this because it's fun. But but if you do want to. Uh, you do want to pledge your support uh, that would be that would be lovely and if you want to ask questions you certainly don't have to be a supporting patron to do that we'll uh, we like questions and we like talking about them and then to just uh wrap up the point on uh on chris's question uh we we do have i'm trying to get um someone else to weigh in on um on the heart rate based training because this is something that i've wanted to explore with uh with kind of like a world-class coach uh for some time and it's uh the rpe-based training really kind of ties in nicely with it because it's 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 a similar topic and so there's a couple of folks that i'm uh trying to follow up with so uh chris you'll get more than just my and andrew's thoughts on this one so uh yeah thanks for saying that someone
1: who's actually qualified to talk about it
0: well hey now i i would say like i'm somewhat at least somewhat qualified yeah you you are a coach yes um
1: You plus me not being qualified. (laughs) I will fully admit that I'm not qualified to weigh
0: in. Uh, Fair enough. There's always more qualified people out there, Uh, regardless of how qualified you may or may not be. Um, So, listeners, I think this is a good place to... uh, to uh, put a pin in this one um, it's getting kind of late and I'm getting you know a little bit too punchy even for my own liking um, so as always thank you so much for listening and uh, I'm not sure how much this is going to get make it into the show but uh, we Andrew and I just started talking and uh, and we had spent like 25 or 27 minutes before we even started recording the show formally and catching up on stuff so it's been uh, it's been a, a nice long conversation and now i am ready for bed so thank you for listening and uh you know uh, give us a rating a review you know the drill and uh, we've had some nice ratings come in and i appreciate that very much um and uh more most importantly tell your friends right i mean uh it does sound like ratings and reviews help us uh, be discovered in itunes uh but uh nothing is better than word of mouth so if you like the show if you think that you've Learn something useful or, um, you know, listen to someone who has a really interesting opinion on something, uh, then tell your friends, tell them, hey, listen, go listen to Endurance Innovation and because you may learn something fun. <laughs> Is that good? <laughs> what else do I have? <laughs> That's good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh. All right, everyone. I will, uh, well, I don't know. Do you want to say something? Say so.
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> That's
0: good. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Yeah,
1: I, I'm feeling the same way. To be I'm honest. totally running I'm- out of gas.